Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Carrier. Turn to the experts. Roy and Rono, how are you today? Good morning, Jim. Given what you know about uh, foundations, uh, if you were buying a house, what would you look for? Oh, honestly, when I'm looking to buy a house, I'm looking for one that's got a foundation problem so I can fix it and buy it cheaper. Yeah, I thought you would. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I thought you would do that. But beyond that, uh, really, if you're out looking for a house, you know, you hear people say all the time there's two kinds of houses, those that have had foundation problems and those that will. And truthfully, mm-hmm. that's really not the case. I mean, we joke around about that a lot in the industry, but if a house is taken care of and protected, uh, you really don't have to have foundation problems. As an example, I'd be looking for how close are the trees to, to the house? Have they started causing any foundation problems yet? If they haven't, I'm going to do preventative maintenance with root barriers, things like that in order to keep it from causing a problem. Uh, And to be honest with you, I kind of tend to look at the years of the house that I'm buying. If it's something in the 70s or later, it's going to have PVC plumbing under it. And I'm going to do a static test to make sure there's no leaks because those leaks are what cause just a tremendous amount of foundation problems. Uh, But if it's in the 60s or earlier, I know it's going to have cast iron under it. And I'm going to figure I'm going to have to eventually replace that plumbing, even if there are no leaks now. And you got to take that into account when you're buying that house. Mm-hmm. Because all that old cast iron, it is doing nothing but deteriorating under there at this point. And so eventually it's got to be replaced. And that does get expensive. So that is one thing I do take a look at. Um, but as, as far as other things... I'll tell you the the big things I'm looking at is, one, is the foundation moving at all? If it's not, I am not going to think twice about it. I'm not going to worry about that. Two, what's it got for windows? If it's got the old single-pane aluminum frame windows, I know eventually I'm going to want to replace those with the double-pane windows. I'm going to take a look at the condition of the roof because insurance doesn't cover typically as much on the roof as they used to. It used to be if you got a hailstorm that came through, hey, man, it is time to tear that roof off and get a new one because insurance is paying for the majority of it. Well, now a lot of the insurance companies have moved up to where you're paying 2% of the deductible, or your deductible is 2% of the the cost of your policy. So if you're in a a $300,000 house, which a lot of people are, 2%, 2%, you're at six grand, and the roof is only 10 or 12, you're paying for at least half of it now. So I, I'm going to really take a hard look at that roof, what kind of condition it's in. I don't want to have to pay for that out of my pocket. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know, is the electrical good, the plumbing good, uh, those type of items, because again, they don't typically go bad, but if you're getting an older home, something built in the 40s or earlier, the wiring typically is going to be to the age where it's going to have to be replaced. We always look at it as though that's a permanent part of the house, but it actually does have to be replaced, much like windows do. They do have a lifetime or a, a, a life to them that 
requires replacement. The old galvanized pipes, uh, eventually you either have to replace those or do like an e-pipe system through them to to refresh those as well. So those are the type of things I'm going to look at. And truthfully, usually the foundation is not high on that list. Although I check it, uh, it's not something that I, I lose a lot of sleep over because it's one of those things where as long as it hasn't moved now, as long as I maintain the, the house properly with irrigation, drainage, and root barriers, I can keep it stable forever. Good. You know, here in Texas, I haven't seen any concrete that's not cracked. So as you walk around a house and you're looking at it, are you looking for cracks around the foundation? Usually not. I'm, where I'm looking is higher up. Uh, like the freeze boards okay. that hang over the brick, are they separating? Are you yeah. know, the corners opening up? Is it pulling along the windows edge and the door edges? Is that gap opening up? Uh, all concrete cracks by nature. The steel is in it to hold it together. So as mm-hmm. if I do see any cracks in the slab, I usually don't worry about it unless it started separating. And I'm not talking about a hairline separation. I mean. We start getting into an eighth inch and quarter inch gaps. Hey, something's going on with the reinforcing. It's time to take a harder look. Um, and not That's to it. pick on houses, but houses built during and right after World War II, the reinforcing is almost non-existent in those slabs, and they become a real problem. So if you're going to buy a slab from that time period, be well prepared that sooner or later you may have to pick the whole structure up, take the concrete out from under it, re-pour that concrete, and set the house back down on it. And it can be done. So, Okay. Thank you, Joe. Roy, that music means i got to take a quick break for news, traffic, and weather. We'll be back with more Texas Home Improvement. Brad, this is Jim. How can I help you? Good afternoon. I um, just have a, a question or needing an opinion on um, basement. Um and I know that um, there's not a lot of them here from a part of the country or basements are, are basically under every house. What is the holdup here? Uh, why are they not common? Um, or is there anybody that will build them that you can recommend um, as part of a new home construction? There are some basements here. Uh, they're not common, though, because, you know, the main reason they have them in the northern states is the ground freezes. Well, our ground doesn't freeze here. And so once they start digging down to get below frost lines, it's easy for them to go down a little extra and have usable basement space. Since we don't have to dig down for ground freezing, it just isn't one of those things that happens here much. On top of that, in a lot of our area, the water table is so high that we have a moisture problem with moisture coming in. Not that they don't have that in some of the northern states as well. And that's easily... Uh, remedied but the bigger problem is just the sheer cost of digging when you don't have to Uh, it is cheaper in texas to go up or out than to go down okay that helps a lot um you don't know by air or is there anybody that i could contact that would be would entertain a basement or a builder or contractor or anything that um, would be helpful i got to be honest, I don't know of any builders who that's what they specialize in doing or anything. I just know that I run across them periodically um, and, and that they are done, but it's 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 extremely rare. Okay. All righty. Thank you very much. You bet, Brad. Take care. 
Again, our number, 1-800-288-9227. That's 1-800-288-9227. Yeah, basements are, are great, but we have so much land here. Like I said, it's cheaper to go up or out than it is to go down for basements. And a lot of the basements we see here are where they build them into the side of hills, things like that, where it's really not a true basement. It's just a more of a split-level house. Matt, how are you today? Great, sir, and how are you? I am doing wonderful. How can I help you? Um, I've got a friend that's wanting some handyman work done around her house, and one of the items on the list <laughs> uh, is some slow drains in the bathtub and sinks, and um, I'm thinking that it may be uh, hair-related. There's a lot, of, a lot of ladies in the home. Yep. And I'm wondering what type of a product I may be able to use uh, Drano wise or something like that that would help kind of clear that out without having to you know rod out the uh, the line. Unfortunately, there isn't. Uh, I know they sell a ton of products where they'll say, "Oh, it'll it'll help to clear these things out." And I've yet to find one that was worth a darn. Uh, I always end up having to go in and pull out that hair out of there. And a lot of times what you'll find is when you do pull that hair out, it's been melted together with the chemicals that people have tried to dump down in those drain lines. So I, I would recommend, rather than wasting your money on that, uh, go to Ace Hardware or one of the box stores, and they make a plastic uh, uh, it, a plastic rod, basically. And it's got these little barbs that come up, much like a rose plant does. And as you stick it down in there and pull it out... It hooks the hair and just pulls all that garbage out. Then you can spray something or put something down in there. I personally use scrubbing bubbles and a toothbrush to clean the the sides of the pipe, uh, just the neck towards the top up there. Right. And that normally, and then I flush hot water through it, and that cleans well, them out and keeps them going for a long time. And you say hot water. What I, I've just done, and they've said they've tried some things, and then. What they did is they tried to turn the hot water on in the bathtub. Well, you know, you have cold water coming first. Yep. And so what I normally do is just boil a big pot of hot water and pour it directly into it instead of trying to turn the cooler water on. And sometimes that helps. But now in my home, I'm having an issue with very, very low water pressure in the bathroom. And it takes forever for the hot water in the sink in the kitchen to come up. And yeah. I'm wondering, could that be a calcium problem in the lines or something restricting the lines? It can be, but have you tried uh, removing the aerators yet and cleaning them? Um, yes. and it's uh, Now, my bathroom is the closest to the hot water heater, I would say, you know, as the crow flies 10 feet. Right. But the other bathroom is, you know, on the other side of the house, and it really doesn't get hardly any hot water and i don't know if it may be a root that's maybe got a hot water line pinched or i mean i don't know but no it, it won't be that it'll it'll be a line restriction somewhere now is it strictly on the hot water side this is happening no it's not because on the cold water side i mean i can open up both both hot and cold in the sink in the one bathroom and it just i mean it comes out but i mean it's barely enough to, to pressure to wash your hand yeah you know, whereas you, it used to just come out, you know, at, at a 55-pound pressure, like right. normal, and it's not. 
Okay, and you have taken the, the end off and, and cleaned the aerator out, you said. Uh, the aerator, what is that exactly? I'm, I'm well, where the, where the water spigot, where the water comes out, uh, that end piece will come off, and what happens oh, yeah, is... Little, yeah, yeah, the drain, uh, the, uh, the strainers and whatnot. Yep, all the screens and all that stuff. Yeah, actually, I've taken them completely out just so I can get some more pressure out of, out of you know... Okay. Out of the, the then, then here's what I would recommend you try doing in order to kind of trace back where this problem is. Underneath the sink, you, you typically have some valves and then lines that go up to the faucet themselves. Shut those valves off, undo the lines, and then turn the valves on into a five-gallon bucket and see if you're getting full flow there. If you are, that tells uh, me that you got a... Uh, is this a single-handle or a two-handle faucet? Two-handle faucet. Okay. If you're getting full flow, it would mean that you got some restrictions inside the faucet itself, more than likely where they're, where they're mixing. If you're not, then the restriction is probably at those valves under the sink, and they need to be gotcha. changed out. Yeah, it's a 30-year-old home in Plano, and I think those are sweated valves. They're not compression valves. So. Yep. It's take a little bit of work, but well, thank you very much, sir. Have a great weekend, and, and I appreciate your, your show and your help. Thank you, sir. You as well. Scott, how can I help you today? Oh, yes. Good afternoon, Jim. Uh, quick question regarding some home repairs I'm needing to get taken care of. For those of us that now have discovered we're living in earthquake territory. <laughs> yeah. Kind of soon our, I wonder when our homeowner's policies are going to start saying, oh, no, that's not covered. Well, as long as, there, as long as there's no more than these minor little tremors we've been having, yeah. um, we can, I think we can still deal with it. But until it gets more serious, I'm hoping we can manage in the meantime. But nonetheless, it's not helping some of the hairline cracks and the sheetrock around my house. I actually had a, a, a painter friend who came in actually with, the, with plaster and the paper tape and actually, actually filled most of the cracks around my house about five years ago. Uh-huh. But we've certainly had a few tremors since then, and almost every one of the cracks that he's fixed has opened up again. And I'm questioning to say there's got to be a better way, or what, what, else, what other tricks can we use to, to close these uh, hairline cracks for good? Well, most of the time the hairline cracks are there because there's been foundation movement, not just the movement from the earthquakes. But what can happen, you know, like when we went through that uh, five-year drought, oh, yes. the soil in the middle part of the house stays hydrated the soil around the perimeter dries out and the foundation is literally spanning and what happens when we get those little tremors is it's enough to jolt the foundation and have the outside edges drop hence the cracks show up again but unfortunately when we started started to rain the soil swelled and can pick those edges up again and so it's kind of on a hinge going up and down what I have found works best is rather than tape using uh, regular paper tape on fixing those cracks, yeah. use a fiber mesh. Oh, fiber on that. Okay. Yeah, they make a fiber mesh tape for doing sheetrock repairs. And don't follow the instructions that come, and this is one of the few times I tell you this, don't follow the instructions that come with that fiber mesh tape. Because what it tells you to do is sand down and then put this tape over the crack and spread the mud over the tape. I have found that when I do that, the um, fiber mesh tends to peel loose later, just like the paper tape does. But if I take that and sand down, V out my crack so that I've kind of got a trough there, 
All right. Then put the sheetrock mud into it, just like you were doing a new joint, and the fiber tape over it, embed it with your sheetrock knife, just like you would a paper tape. That stuff holds extremely well. And it should last a whole lot longer for us then. That sounds yes. encouraging. Yep. Okay, very good. Because I'm looking, looking at these cracks and I say, there's got to be a way to fix this. There's got to be a better way than what we've been doing. So we'll see if we can give us a try with, with the fiber then. There you go. And again, and not following instructions in this case, as odd as that sounds. But as we'll odd as that sounds. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. I definitely appreciate the help. You bet, Scott. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wade, this is Jim. Welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Hi, sir. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. How about you? Fine, thank you. We're looking at an older house in Lufkin to purchase, uh-huh. and it has some funky-looking paperboard siding on it. And I, th- I guess it's fiberboard. The only thing I can, the best I can determine it. Built in 64. What? Oh, built in 64. Okay. Um, I was wondering if she's... Like, it's pretty gnarly looking. I was wondering, should we get that off there and put some hardy plank on it? Well, when you say it's funky looking, what what, what makes it funky looking? Well, it looks like it's had water underneath it, and they painted over it. That's what it looks like on one side of it. Okay. Yeah, and, and so it expanded, and then they painted it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, at the very least, you've got to take off the sections that expanded before you put the hardy up. But yeah, it's not going to hold up after after having uh, water underneath the paint like that. Well, what about just just pulling it all off and just putting the oh, yeah. hardy, you know? There over and it. there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. Now, yeah, if you, you a lot of times, depending on how far apart your studs are and stuff, uh, Hardy does typically recommend to have you know boards behind it. In other words, either plywood or or something like that. That's the reason a lot of times, even though you got this particle type stuff, I'll tell people to, you know, if it's got a, edges that are bad, cut those off, put in some filler pieces, and put your siding over it. But if it's a large area, just get it all off and and redeck it with something else. Well, it uh, I stuck my finger. There's a there's a piece on the north end of the house, and it's kind of tore off. I put my finger in there and was poking at it, and it feels like there's like plywood behind it. Ah, okay, definitely then take all that junk off. Mm-hmm. What I'm guessing, because yeah. you, when you said that it was built in the 60s, they really weren't using that siding yet, and so what I'm thinking is they probably put it over some regular wood siding. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's like, a, it looks like pressed cardboard is what it looks like. Yep, long oh, that, that, and that's really all that junk was, is pressed cardboard. Yeah, it looks like it. Yep. Well, okay. that's our question. So, well, sir, we're gonna go. We're gonna go look at the house and one more time, but we think we're gonna get it. So, it's a nice house. It's a good price, so. And, and you know, just, and 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 this is for everybody listening. Just because you see one thing you don't like, don't let that keep you from buying a house because you're gonna do things to make it yours anyways, and just figure on repairs like Wade's talking about as being part of that project. Wade, good luck with that house. All right, sir. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. Because, uh, let's face it, you can go out there and look at a thousand houses. You're never going to find the one that fits you exactly the way you want everything. Because let me tell you, even if you build a brand new house, there's no such thing as that perfect 
fit for everything. Because even though you plan it all out, once you get moved in, you're going to say, you know, if I just had three more inches over here, it would have been perfect. I'm telling you, that's on every single house. So take them and fix them up and make them yours. Jeff, welcome to KTRH. How can I help you? Uh, yes, sir. I really like your show. Uh, two, two quick questions, uh, one on an attic door, one on paint. Uh, I have a small air-conditioned uh, closet, about 4 by 5 just has a small vent, which leads to an upstairs bonus room. And I've got a small attic door that leads from that little closet out to the attic. It's probably 2 foot by what are 40 inches, 48 inches. I'd like to make that like an 80-inch tall by 24-inch wide door. Do you recommend solid wood? hollow is there is there a big difference in the thermal barrier there as long as the sides are sealed any thoughts on that there's a huge difference in the thermal uh if you're going to go to a full-size door like that you got one of two choices one uh go with a, a an exterior type solid door in order to handle the temperatures from the attic the other, and this is what I actually did in my house, because I've got a small access door that goes into a low attic. And I had, I already had in my possession a hollow core door that I cut down, built for that. But the heat coming through it was unbelievable. So I just took some radiant barrier and hung on the inside of it. And it killed uh, that heat transfer. Okay, I had thought about drilling holes in the door and spray foaming inside. I just don't know how how hollow it really was. You know, they're not hollow. They're not hollow enough to do that. Uh, yeah. There, there's typically cardboard weaved in through there in order to give the uh, the two boards strength enough where you can actually push on them where they don't just cave in on each other. Okay, great. I can get a uh, hard, uh, entry solid core door. I'll probably do that. I appreciate that. And uh, the second one is. I've got a brand-new workbench we built. You know, it's all uh, nice plywood and untreated cedar, you know, 4x4s and that type of thing. And I'd like to paint it a flat-color paint. It's a brand-new construction house to make it match the garage. Uh-huh. And uh, then over the top of it, I'd like to seal it. I'm thinking what I'm looking at is the, the acrylic or the water-based, I'm sorry, water-based polyurethane so it doesn't yellow over time. Do you? But it looks like a satin finish. Is that... Do you have any thoughts about how to protect that over time so that it's easy to wipe up and not turn all black and marked up over time? Well, first I would use an exterior paint, not an interior. And you can get the color to match still what you're doing on the inside. Okay. Uh, and that'll keep it from fading and stuff. Uh, it, as far as something that you can put on there, though, to seal from marring, uh I got to be honest. I, I I don't know of anything that you're going to put on there that's going to keep it from marring. Yeah, I, I have in the past. I've had some others, and then you know, 25 years, my other one did get dark, and I noticed that the polyurethane yellowed too. Yep. You know, or yeah, on a different shade, and it just you know, wasn't sure well, how you, that would look over time. And you have to remember, regular paints they're made to be replaced every you know 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's just no easy solution. It is in the nope. garage out of the sun, but over time, you're going to have to do something to make it look pretty again. Jeff, it sounds like you got a, a very neat and cleaned-up garage, and you got this nice workbench going in and stuff. And when you get finished with that one, call me. I'll give you my address because I could use one. Uh, I will. I think you'll like <laughs> it. I'd love talking to you about it. So. <laughs> 
All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. I got to tell you, I got a mess in my garage, and I, I need I, – I was talking with my wife earlier today that it's, it's time to get that mess cleaned up. Suzanne, welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Hey, thank you. I have a question. We are getting ready to redo some flooring in the house. We bought us an older house, and we've got small dogs that seem to puddle on the floor a lot. So we were looking at the luxury vinyl planks, and I've seen a couple different kinds. Some had cork on the back, and some had like a felt on the back. And I'm just wondering if you can give me your opinion on like what brand is better than others and... Anything you can tell me? Well, th there are different levels of these type of floorings. And okay. if you'll go over to Floor and Decor, they can show you all the different ones. Oh, okay. Um, and, and they'll give you some other options as well because there are some floating floors that you could put in where they interlock together. Right. That's what these were. They were showing me they were uh, floating. Okay. They snapped together. Okay, so they snap together, and they're they're yeah. probably like a half inch thick. Right. Okay. Yeah, and, and floor and decor has three different types of those that they carry. Oh, okay. Uh, and some of them are just water resistant. Some are waterproof. Right. And you'll want to take a look at those because yeah, that's absolutely the way to go if you're going to do it in the kitchen, bathroom, right. or right. if you got pets who have issues like you were just talking about. Okay. Uh, and. Really, it's just then um, because they're right now it's limited manufacturers of these type of floors. Right. All of them are are very good. Uh, the one thing I would tell you is just get the color and look that you like because they right. come in massive amounts yeah. of colors. Right. We're kind of finding that out. We've seen some by Maddington that had. Yep. They were kind of pretty. Is that a pretty decent company? Yes, it is. Okay. Okay, well, that's what we're trying to find out. I appreciate you here. Do you recommend anybody to floor and decor do the installation also? Or they no, but they do, they do have uh, recommended contractors for the install. Okay, great. That's what I needed. Okay, and, and you know, the best part that. about going to floor and decor is they're, where, they're, they're in huge buildings. You know, right. they take old Kmarts and old uh, Home Depots and stuff, and it's nothing but flooring. So they've right. got it on hand for you, ready to go. But okay. they've also got large enough displays you can truly see what you're buying. Right, because these little four-foot-by-four-foot displays are having it, a hard time. don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. You bet. Take care, Suzanne. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, and welcome to Texas Home Improvement this fine holiday weekend as we enter into the Christmas season. Jim is out, and I am in Todd Tremonti here with the Todd Tremonti Home Selling Team, sitting in Jim's chair doing my very best to answer your home improvement questions. I had, uh, I had teased earlier that we would talk about some of the trends that have existed this year and some that we expect uh, to continue next year. And uh, we'll get to some of those now and probably some more later. Uh, one of the ones that we've seen become a huge value add uh, to current property value or potential resale value is outdoor living spaces. And I've got one of my best friends just sent me a picture today uh, of what he built in his backyard. And I've started to see these things pop up more and more. 
Um, it's it's a basically built out of four by fours and it's a hexagon. So if you can imagine about 12, 14 feet up, you've got a hexagon built in you know, six sides. You can do an octagon built out of four by fours and that at each joint, you've got a four by four coming down uh, post coming into the ground, concreted into the ground. And then in each opening, you got six or eight sides. There's a swing or a hammock. Or, or some sort of fun, relaxing, entertaining uh, deal in the middle. So you can have you, know, you can have a trapeze or ropes for the kids. You can have a slack line. Uh, again, hammocks are great, and and all kinds of different. Uh, you could do the like a porch swing type swing or an individual kid type swing. I've seen them really big with a fire pit in the middle, with with six or eight porch swing type swings. So it's a great gathering entertainment area. And then I've also seen them with, with all hammocks or all kids stuff. So those outdoor living type deals uh, are becoming huge. Of course, the outdoor kitchen is a trend that's in Texas is probably not ever going to go away. Uh, we're starting to see more and more of the integrated grills and, and, and the uh, big green eggs and the, and the Traeger grills are a huge new trend outside. Those type things being permanently built in where a homeowner is not going to take that with them when they sell are, are seeing, to be really honest with you, huge returns on those investments. You know, you might spend two or $3,000 creating an outdoor space with a grill and things, but the resale value benefit could be two or three times that. So you could see, you know, a, a six or a nine or $10,000 return on something like that. And that's that's one of those opportunities for you to go ahead and do it now and enjoy it and then get the benefit from it later when it's time to sell it. Um, some of these you know, outdoor play kid type things, uh, swings and benches and things like that are very simple to do. We just we just had some benches built in our backyard. A pergola went up this year. We put a pond in. So outdoor living type stuff is is a huge. Uh, there's a lot of momentum behind that, and we're seeing that have a lot of impact on resale value. So something to think about. A lot of people ask me, should I? I want to do this, but is it a wise financial choice? And what I'm telling you is. Uh, if it's in the area of, of outdoor living that would be broadly attractive to most people that own your property. So if you've got an itty bitty lot, um, putting something in the backyard that takes up all of your usable grass area is probably not a good idea because now you've totally changed the use of that property. But if you've got some space to really define one corner of the lot as useful, where it may have been hard to understand how to use it, now you now you've got a wise choice there to really add some value to your property and so in that regard i think the outdoor living spaces are are a great call and i would advise that you you do those things now and enjoy them as opposed to doing them at the last minute just for resale uh, why does it make sense for a buyer uh, to sign with a buyer's agent now uh, I'm going to back up a little bit and talk to you guys about the difference between what a buyer's agent is and and what most people would call a listing agent. At our company, we call that person a marketing specialist because no one really wants to have someone just put them on a list. You want your home to be marketed and negotiated, and, and you want to be advocated for and represented well. But generally speaking, you have an agent that represents the seller. Now, up until the late 80s, early 90s, about 1994 is where the pendulum really kind of swung, there was no such thing as a buyer's representative, a buyer's agent. The reason for that was this. In virtually every residential real estate transaction, the commissions are paid to the agent or agents by the seller of the home. 
by the seller of the home. And so therefore, up until late 80s, early 90s, like I said, really about 1994 is where I would pinpoint the major shift. Whether you had an agent showing you property or you worked directly with the agent that was working for the seller, either way, both of those real estate agents really owed their fiduciary responsibility. Their put your interest before my own type responsibility they owed that to the seller because the seller was the one paying the commission. Now, that sounds silly if you were a buyer working with an agent that that agent really had their loyalty to the seller. Well, it was, but it also made sense from a compensation standpoint that the seller was the one writing the checks to the real estate agents, therefore agents owed them their their most loyal behavior. Now, Many, 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 many people begin to raise their hand and say, no, 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 I want someone to advocate for me. I want someone to represent me. We were talking in, in the first hour about if you were to go to court and the other person had a team of professionals that did this all day, every day, and you went in there winging it on your own. Well, can you imagine going into court with one of their attorneys? How crazy that would think that would feel. That's kind of what it was like. And so it didn't take long after there was a good momentum built and a good little uproar about it that the idea of buyer agency came into play. And because of that, there's specific documentation that a home buyer should sign with an agent, not to obligate you as the buyer to the agent. It may do that. But more importantly, what it will do is obligate that real estate agent to you. And what I mean by that is now they owe you that fiduciary responsibility. They owe you that ethical commitment. They owe you putting your interests before their own. And more importantly, putting your interests before the interests of the seller. Even though the seller may still be compensating, and, and to be really clear about this, the seller is more often than not compensating their agent, the one that we often call the listing agent the one that our company calls the marketing specialist. And then the listing agent or marketing specialist is then offering a cooperating, a portion of their fee out to the person that's representing the buyer. If no one's representing the buyer, then, then they keep whatever fee they negotiated with their seller. There's no standard, there's no set fee. But whatever that is, they either keep it or they share it with the buyer representative. Even though the compensation may come from the seller or that seller's agent, even though, the compensation comes from over there, you can still have the full ethical obligation and protection and advocacy of an agent if and only if you have a written buyer representation agreement. In the state of Texas, it's called a buyer representation agreement or specifically a buyer tenant representation agreement. Now, a lot of buyers are reluctant, and I'm going into a long answer on this because this is an area of a lot of concern and where, unfortunately, a lot of buyers lose trust in real estate agents because they feel like an agent is trying to get them to sign something only to commit the client to the agent so that they can trap you into being a client. Now, at our company, we give every single client, no matter what, a cancellation guarantee. Cancel at any time, don't owe us anything, no matter what. The reason for that is we don't want a client to ever feel like they've been trapped into working with us. First of all, we always want to lead with value so nobody ever feels that way. But in the event that someone's situation changed, we don't want them to feel like we're trying to trap them into working with us if they no longer want to buy a home or that for whatever reason didn't want to work with us. So we alleviate that risk that way. 
But generally speaking, market-wide, a lot of you um, have been reluctant to sign documentation with a real estate agent because you didn't want to get locked into something. And what I'm telling you is you want to sign that paperwork because you want to lock in or commit your representative, your licensed real estate agent, to representing you. So the original question was, why work with a buyer agent? And what I'm trying to do is explain what the difference between a buyer agent and a listing agent is, the person that works with the buyer and the person that works with the seller. Without that documentation, that person might be giving their loyalty and their ethical uh, duty to the seller, not you. That You don't want to end up in that situation. Uh, we've got one more here. We'll try to get to one more here quickly. We had a foreclosure on our block. Will it bring our value down if we sell it in if we sell our house in the next six months? Another trick question. Uh, the answer I would say is if there's enough homes that have sold, you shouldn't have to include a foreclosure into your valuation process. Um, if for some reason you are having to include a foreclosure, that ought to be adjusted for. And if for some reason an appraiser didn't do that, a good real estate agent that's working hard for you would go and make sure that they were aware that yes, that is a a, a similar home that sold but the situation wasn't comparable. Now, the black and white says, yes, same bed, same bath, same square footage, same neighborhood, same time of the year. That needs to factor in. But you know, you could get into the minutia of that and talk about smells and time of the year and all sorts of things that an appraiser may not factor in. And if you're generous with your willingness to help and give them information, a lot of times those things can be adjusted uh, really to the benefit of you and a good agent ought to be able to help you do that. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.